So this is our Simon Don reading group. We're continuing our reading of volume two of Individuation in Light of Notions of Form and Information. Uh, we're on the sort of mini book, uh, History of the Notion of the Individual. Um, and then last time we finished the section on Descartes. Um, so we looked at, um, well, a few different things, but uh, so one of them was the uh, this notion of a provisional morality which Descartes proposes. Um, so there's this idea that ultimately we, we would want to have our system of ethics or, or morals to be uh, sort of founded on the science of, of, you know, the human being and the way that the world is constituted and so on. Uh, but in the meantime, while we're waiting for the science to be um, completed, we still have to act in the world. We have to decide, you know, uh, where we want to live, what we want to do for a living, uh, you know, who, uh, what political uh, forces we want to support or oppose, and so on. We have to make decisions without having all of the knowledge that would allow for uh, a completely rational decision. Um, and so Descartes uh, proposes a few um, sort of principles for decision um, in in light of uncertainty, so making a decision without having the knowledge that you would need to um, sort of completely decide. Uh, so that we we saw that a little bit, um, and then we also saw um, the the bit about um, uh, sorry, I'm just trying to find it here. Uh, the, yeah, the bit about the transmission of evidence, which Simon Don we've seen this in uh, some other texts from Simon Don, but uh, um, there's this. Sort of the way that Descartes uh, constructs his system um, is to uh, start from something indubitable, the, something that um, is not subject to doubt, which is the cogito, uh, and then uh, perform these deductive chains of deductions. Um, so um, starting from uh, this uh, foundation that uh, is un this unshakable foundation. Uh, and then having a transmission of evidence from one link to the next in this chain of arguments. And so the idea is that we develop this full, this complete system of, um, of, uh, of knowledge that is uh, completely certain because it's founded on this uh, immediate certainty of the cogito. And then each link in the chain is uh, transmits that certainty to the next link in the chain. Um, so. So that's um, another bit about Descartes that we saw last time. Uh, and then we also talked about the one of the probably the central difficulty for Descartes, which is to account for the relationship between the body and the soul. Um, so uh, the, the body is a piece of extended thing uh, of the race extensa. It's uh, the body is a, a kind of machine. You know, the heart is a, a kind of furnace that heats up the blood and so on. Uh, every part of the body is just a mechanical um, apparatus of of, uh, of some kind, um, and uh, the soul is inextended. Uh, and um, it's um, so how exactly? Um, so there are two completely heterogeneous substances. There's no um, there's no similarity between them, uh, but uh, somehow we like we we are aware of the. Um, uh, the way that our our soul is capable of acting on the body by causing voluntary motion. So um, I decide to walk across the room, and my uh, the machine of my body um, acts in such a way that I walk across the room. And then, of course, in the other direction, we have perception, where our body is affected by 
uh, other bodies in the environment. Uh, and then our soul um, forms the idea of uh, the piece of wax or whatever other body surrounding us. Uh, and so how exactly this interaction is supposed to happen is something that um, Descartes uh, ultimately says is beyond human understanding. He's, he thinks that God uh, unites the, the human soul and the human body in a way that uh, uh, we can't understand. We just have to sort of accept that it exists. And, uh, and that's the, the sort of end of our inquiry. Um, he also gives these not quite explanations, but these sort of ideas of how this interaction would happen uh, and they have to do with the pineal gland, which is a, a small uh, uh, gland within the brain. Uh, and so Descartes thinks that this is the location where this interaction happens. Um, and he his, his sort of um, trick for accounting for um, for this interaction is that uh, the, the quantity of motion in the world of extension is is fixed, is uh, conserved in all interactions. So whenever um, a particle hits another particle, the total quantity of motion stays the same. Uh, but the direction of motion uh, can vary. Uh, so when a, a particle hits another particle, the two particles will bounce off each other in opposite directions. And so what Descartes says, the, um, the operation of the soul in the pineal gland is, uh, is this uh, sort of... Uh, um, changing the direction of motion of uh, the animal spirits that fill up our nerves. So it's a, a kind of hydraulic model of um, the functioning of the human body. Uh, and so the, the soul in some mysterious way operates to change the direction of motion of the animal spirits in our, in our nerves, uh, which then uh, cause our muscles to contract and cause our body to perform various motions. Um, and uh, so this is Descartes' sort of schema for how how um, the soul acts on the body. Uh, but then Simondo points out that uh, this schema uh, only really allows for one-way um, interaction, uh, even if we sort of gloss over the problem of how the soul is supposed to act on the body in the first place. Um, but uh, it, it takes the form of uh, the, what he calls a relay, so uh, an apparatus, a technical device that allows for the control of a larger quantity of energy by a small quantity of energy. So you can think of like the way that the rudder on a ship uh, uh, sort of directs the motion of the ship with a, a very small amount of energy compared to the energy that the the that is required to move the ship as a whole. Um, uh, but then the motion in the opposite or the influence of going in the opposite direction is uh, impossible to understand um, because the whole point of a relay is that it. it controls the, the the small amount of energy controls the larger amount of energy uh, and if you had influence going in the other direction uh, then that control function would not be possible anymore uh, so uh, it's so Descartes uh, schema um, ultimately doesn't allow us to understand the uh, um, how the soul can be affected by the body in in perception uh, and so this is um, sort of the core difficulty of uh, the Cartesian system and uh, we'll see, uh, I think a little bit today in the Spinoza section, that um, um, overcoming this difficulty was one of the idea, one of the key um, problems that was posed for post-Cartesian philosophy. Uh, I think that's all I wanted to talk about for the uh, Descartes section that we saw last week. So maybe we can jump into the Pascal section uh, if someone else would like to read the first bit. Yeah, I can read the first 
uh, page or so. Uh, Pascal. For Pascal, the problem's principle of intelligibility is no longer a reality given among the terms of the position of the problem. Man brings to the problem to be resolved the invention of a notion that is not intelligible by itself, but confers intelligibility to the problem. This new notion contributed by the individual being does not emerge from a position of the problem alone. Here, the homogeneity and continuity supposed by Descartes are replaced with a discontinuity, a plurality. The heterogeneity that require for each problem an action of invention on the part of the human individual. This human individual is the being who can comprehend the position of a problem and contribute this singular notion that creates intelligibility. Dependent on an invention, intelligibility is not contained in the elements of reality constituting the problem. The individual, therefore, plays a role that does not make him tend toward universality. On the contrary, there is something unique and irreplaceable in every invention, and the individual who invents it is in some fashion the man of this problem. The act of invention appears in the extreme particularity of the individual who has posed the problem to himself by knowing all the circumstances without omitting any of them. There is, so to speak, a particular world for each problem, and there is something infinite about each problem. Method is particular and cannot be applicable to all problems, for every problem has this aspect of the universe that excludes all other universes actually. Consequently, the individual contributes more than an activity of clarification. He contributes something original in particular that isolates him from other individuals, at least at the instant in which he contributes a solution to a problem. There no longer exists a unity of method depending on the unity of the intellect. In order for a mind to be fruitful within its domain, it must be exclusive. Quote, it is rare that geometers are acute men or acute men geometers, unquote. Each direction of the mind requires different gifts, and each problem calls for a particular direction of the mind in which it must be engaged. Thus, for each problem there appears through invention a particular notion that is an elaboration of the individual strictly relative to the problem. The problem of conic sections is resolved by the invention of the quote-unquote mystic hexagram, which is a hexagon, it allows for the deduction of all the properties of conic sections. Similarly, the consideration of triangular numbers makes it possible to find the center of gravity of the cycloid and of the surfaces or volumes that depend on this curve. What constitutes the method proper to each problem is this perception of the rapport between the triangular numbers and the question of the cycloid's center of gravity, or between the mystic hexagram and the properties of conic sections. Yet this method is proper to the individual being who has made an effort to discover the notion of the notion whose rapport to the terms of the problem contributes the solution. Receive this relation, the notion must have been invented or be capable of being invented again. Unlike in Descartes, here there is no, no longer a construction due to a transfer of evidence. This constructive addition of the known to the unknown to go toward the unknown, of the known to the known to go toward the unknown, is no longer possible. Relative to the terms of the problem, invention is a leap, an absolute initiative that requires individual singularity. Um, Parts of this sort of sound like the way that Simon Don talks about the resolution of a problem in volume one, in the sense that there's this, there's in resolving a problematic, whether it's a perceptive problematic or an effective problematic, the individual is always called into question as well. And the resolution of the problematic involves the kind of co-creation of the solution and the individual as the solver of the problem uh but i don't know i don't know how the it seems like maybe pascal puts more of an emphasis on the, the singularity and that i don't know non-transferability of the solution of the problem yeah i think that's right i think um pascal has the this um 
this notion of the leap that Simon Don points to here is is key uh, for Pascal. Um, so, uh, and we'll see a little bit more on this um, uh, later in the text on Pascal. But um, there's, of course, the famous wager, uh, Pascal's wager, um, where you have to um, sort of make a leap in in faith uh, in God. You can't. Um, you can't. There's no purely rational argument that can convince the atheist to. Uh, to believe in God, um, but you have to take a, a sort of leap of faith. And um, I think that aspect is something that Simon Don um, is uh, a little less um, uh, sort of willing to accept than, than Pascal was. Um, so I think for Simon Don, the act of invention is not so much a leap as a, a sort of transformation of what already exists. Uh, so like in, in Pascal solving a problem, um, is a kind of um, radical newness um, or radical um, uh, creation of something new um, in a way that for Simondon it's it's not quite the same. It's is more of a transformation of what already exists. Um, like in in the famous or the the standard example that he uses, where um, the disparation of the retinal images uh, leads to a um, the um, invention of depth perception. Um, so here, what what we perceive in uh, binocular vision is not something completely different and, and new in comparison to monocular vision. It's a, a sort of transformation of the dimensions of the problem that preserves what was already present in the uh, in in monocular vision. Um, and so I think that's part of where Simonon would uh, distinguish himself from Pascal is um, that aspect of preservation of what. Um, of what was contained in the problem, uh, as opposed to sort of um, uh, transcending it completely, like in Pascal. Uh, and I put a link in the chat here if anyone's interested to look at these uh, uh, mystic uh, hexagrams. Um, it's a, a sort of, um, well, anyway, it's a mathematical procedure that um, Pascal invented. Um, uh, it's maybe uh, not quite as, he, Pascal is not quite as famous as Descartes for his mathematical work, but he was a uh, you know, an important figure in the history of, of mathematics in the 17th century as well. Um, and, you know, he made uh, uh, discoveries in geometry. And um, he also was one of the founders of uh, what eventually became probability theory. Um, uh, so, yeah, he's, a you know, made important mathematical contributions as well. Uh, and he's not just the guy that um, came up with this wager. Uh, there's, there's more to his work than that. He also sort of came up with an early form of a like mechanical calculator uh yes he did um i don't know a lot about that but yeah he he developed a um a mechanical adding machine uh, of some kind and uh it uh i think Leibniz either saw it or you know read about it somewhere and uh that was part of his um um you know motivation for thinking of uh uh you know uh thinking of thinking as a kind of calculation um and coming up with the idea of a, a, a universal calculative language. Um, and so these are, of course, precursors to like the computational theory of mind and uh, the development of computation in the 20th century. Um, so, yeah, Pascal is, um, uh, you know, part of the intellectual tradition that leads up to the creation of computers in the uh, in the 20th century. OK, uh, so let's go on to the, the next bit, if someone else would like to read. I think we're at um, dependent on an, on an invention. Uh, someone can pick up from there. Uh, or if there's no volunteers, I can, I can read from there. OK, I'll read. 
dependent on an invention, intelligibility is not contained in the elements of reality constituting the problem. The individual therefore plays a role that does not make him tend toward universality. On the contrary, there is something unique and irreplaceable in every invention, and the individual who invents is in some fashion the man of this problem. The act of invention appears in the extreme particularity of the individual. Uh, oh, sorry, am I rereading what we already read? Yes, I am. Uh, sorry. Uh, where are we? Uh, sorry, I was uh, zoned out for a second. I think we're at the the advent of invention as opposed to Cartesian right. progress. Sorry, I was on the wrong page. Um, okay. Let me restart. Uh, Leif Mason, if you're uh, editing this afterwards, you can edit that part out so it sounds better. Um, okay. The advent of invention is opposed to Cartesian progress. Only the method of decision in Descartes' provisional morality has something in common with this act of invention in Pascal. For Pascal, there are several orders, while for Descartes, the real is continuous. Between Descartes' method and Pascal's methods, there is a difference that opposes construction and invention. Construction is is continued by a progressive and uninterrupted operation, while invention supposes the existence of a potential that abruptly actualizes into structure. The conception of individual time is opposed in Descartes and in Pascal. For Descartes, there is no potential. Each instant is fully contained within its own limits. For Pascal, alongside the apparent actuality of each instant, there is a potential that operates a straddling of instants upon one another and bursts into invention. The individual is this being who is capable of invention. The elements of a problem are nothing but a rapport between actual terms. It is through the invention of this potential that an individual can resolve a problem. When Pascal applies his thought and his life to the problem of man, this is to pass from man considered as an actual being, who is consequently a monster, a chimera, to man as a being who harbors potentials and who does not have within himself, i.e. in his actuality, the entirety of his explanation. The reality of Christ does not intervene from outside as one fact among others no more than it intervenes from inside, like the idea of the infinite and the perfect that refers to its author. Christ's reality corresponds to the existence of these human potentials that are not in harmony with the actual reality of man. This is why neither sacred history nor philosophical proofs nor the teachings of the church are sufficient or useful to contemplate at the start. Only the ignorance of these potentials impedes the position of the problem. Only the brute stupidity or sheer blindness that conceal these potentials must be eradicated. What must be defeated is destruction, for it saps these potentials that form and, and, uh, and guarantees that they never reach a sufficient level to produce invention. Destruction is what leads man to live in the most actual and instantaneous way possible to avoid the formation of these potentials. Reasoning is powerless to show the value of the Catholic religion. Quote, Metaphysical proofs are so far removed from men's reasoning and so complicated that they have little force, and when they do help some people, it is only at the moment when they see this demonstration but an hour later, they are afraid of having made a mistake, unquote. This is because reasoning is merely actual. It can neither express nor elicit these potentials, which are the essence of real individuality. Only a certain mode of intuition is adequate for these potentials. Traditional proofs are not deprived of value, but their effectiveness to a, uh, to a certain extent is contingent on a first invention or purely individual discovery that can only exist through the actualization of one of these potentials. The most concrete and simplest way to lead men to become aware of these potentials is to make him desire the truth of the Christian religion. Instead of discovering men according to a chain of reasons that are all actual and equal in the modality of the propositions that formulate them, Pascal seeks to concentrate everything that man knows about himself within a unique experience, wherein he will simultaneously know himself in all his aspects. This is how potential forms. Everything that prematurely discharges this potential must be removed, and most particularly the expression to others, description. Right. Uh, there's a, a point of translation here that um, I, I wanted to mention. So um, in the English text, he talks about distraction, 
Um, and yeah, I'm not sure that's exactly the best translation, um, but we sometimes talk about, um, uh, you know, so it, it doesn't have the meaning here of destruction in the sense of, you know, not paying attention to your work or something like that. It, it has to do with, um, we sometimes call, uh, you know, entertainment, um, uh, you know, distractions that we that we um, engage in. Um, and so what what uh, Pascal is talking about here in when, when he talks about these distractions are um, uh, like he talks about how um, noblemen in his time would uh, spend their time hunting or um, uh, playing tennis or something like that. Um, they, they sort of engage in these activities that um, don't have any um, sort of uh, lasting value. Their only function is to um, provide enjoyment for uh, the time in which you're engaging in that activity. Um, and uh, uh, Pascal sees these kinds of activities as, as very um, dangerous in the sense that they, they sort of uh, hide from ourselves our, um, uh, the uh, condition of the human being without God. Uh, and so the, the condition of the human being without God is one of uh, a kind of misery. Uh, and this is made apparent by the fact that we uh, can't really stand to be alone with ourselves uh, for an hour. Um, if you just, you know, uh, any time that you have to wait, I don't know, you have an appointment or something, you have to wait for an hour, you're waiting for the bus or, or something like that. Um, the fact that we find this experience of just being alone with ourselves um, difficult and painful uh, is a, a kind of sign for Pascal that um, the human being without God is is in a state of misery, uh, and so this is uh, this condition, even though it's something that we experience as a kind of suffering, uh, is is a valuable one because it leads us to um, desire uh, to overcome this condition. Whereas when we sort of um, occupy ourselves with these distractions, we uh, sort of uh, paper over the misery in which we live um, as human beings and we don't have that same motivation to uh, try to overcome the human condition uh, by uh, knowledge of God. Sort of reminded me of the brief discussion in the second in collective individuation section of volume one of uh, sin and how he talks about the the experience of sin as being really the or like you know, temptation of sin as being something that is destructive of the condition that is necessary to reach the like trans individual life. Um, and in this way that Pascal, Pascal talks about distraction or the way Simondon frames it in terms of potential um, seems somewhat uh, similar to. Me. Yeah, I think are, are you thinking of the passage where um, where Simondon in, in volume uh, in volume one talked about the um, the sort of exteriorization of the like the principle of um, uh, a sort of falling um, that the exteriorization into the figure of the devil or some sort of yes um, yeah okay um, yeah so so there was that passage where where um, Imondo talks about how we have this experience or there's a, a sort of common human um, understanding of ourselves as having both the potential to uh, sort of surpass ourselves and and exceed um, where where we are now. We always have this sort of feeling of you know being able to um, you know do more or or do better or or be a better person or or something like that. Uh, but then we also have this experience or this feeling of um, sort of falling below the level of which we're capable of uh, you know succumbing to temptation 
and uh, and um, and then there's a, a tendency to to treat that second experience or that second feeling as um, as something external to us, um, as if we're we're sort of uh, being tempted by some other entity, uh, the devil or some sort of principle of of sin or or vice or whatever um, that that sort of leads us to temptation and leads us into um, not fulfilling our potential. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I think this um, this bit about Pascal, um, so this, this this bit about the potential is uh, is Simondon's uh, sort of interpretation. It's not a term that that Pascal himself uses as far as I've seen. Um, um, but yeah, I think there's a similar notion here of um, um, distraction as something that um, sort of leads us away from uh, being able to realize our potential um, as opposed to um, sort of holding on to the state of uh, or, or holding on to that um, experience of misery in which the human being is and using that as a, a motivation to overcome ourselves and, and overcome uh, our, our state of misery. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next bit. If uh, someone else would like to read, I think, yeah, we can read to the end of the section, which is one big paragraph. Oh, I can read. So, uh, the most concrete, simplest way. I uh, know that that's not if Mont Montaigne, Montaigne, right? That's the part, right? Yes, exactly. But Montaigne's project to depict himself is a foolish project. It's because this self-expression is falsely equivalent to a justification of the whole desire of searching and of discovery that there is in an individual being. It seems like we could just to be able to depict ourselves. Montaigne leads to a, a non-challenge about salvation without fear and without repentance. End of quote. Through uh, complacency in oneself. In the same way, Pascal refused uh, the everyday satisfactions of existence, such as a mother embracing her children and all ordinary pleasures in general, even besides those without any hazardous effects, because without restlessness, they read to being a, a heathen, frank, it takes a total experience all in one piece. Stoics and Epicureans hinder more than serve the, the knowledge of men because they simplify the vision and consequently destroy the whole character of attention. To see the greatness of man without seeing his weakness, to see his weakness without seeing his greatness, is much more than to be led astray. It is to conceal to oneself and to conceal to others the fact that man cannot be considered without recognizing his enigmatic and incomprehensible nature. It is not to conserve the attention that results from his incoherence. There is never a truth about man, merely problems, i.e. couples of the uh, of, of opposite and incompatible truth. This incoherence concerns us with respect to what is most profound about us. It removes from our moral life every firm point, every assurance, with the confidence of the stoic and the non-challenge of the skeptic, leaving us terrified and without the center, or rather, without an actuality upon which it could establish knowledge and action. Quotes. What a chimera then is a man, what a novelty, what a monster, what a chaos, what a contra contradiction. Or a prodigy, judge of all things, imbecile, worm of the earth, expository of 
truth or think of uncertainty and error, the pride and refuse the universe, end of quotes. This contradiction could be removed by a metaphysics of mediation, like the one which founds Orphism, if actual participation in the world could be a solution. But the very terms of the problem exclude every solution that would only address the actual nature of men. However, the vision of the universe elaborated by the Renaissance permits nothing but an actual rapport and excludes the conception of a world that would be a reservoir of potentials. Man is consequently reduced to himself. It is at this point that these potentials seem to Pascal to be, re, uh, to be arranged in the supernatural destiny of man revealed by Christianity. Greatness, wretchedness, hope of salvation come from a divine origin, from Christ to misery and redemption. The station procession con conversion rhythm takes on a meaning for man and expla explains him. The wager, wager would have no value without this existence of potentials for man. In man, for a man who would have no desire and no lack of satisfaction, the wager would not be endowed with any force. The wager must lead us to desire and to become aware of the fact that we desire. So, uh, the Pascal, it's quite interesting. Like, uh, Pascal uh, seems very revolutionary compared to Descartes, but the same, at the same time, he couldn't uh, be free from the, the frame of Christianity, like the 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 word of God. Pascal is a um, sort of a strange figure um, that, uh, you know, there's a sort of uh, quasi-existentialist aspect to Pascal, um, you know, his, his um, sort of um, criticism or his, his appreciation for like a, a kind of meaninglessness in human life uh, is something that we can sort of compare to some uh, 20th century existentialist writers. Um, and his sense, you know, he has a, a very strong sense of um, sort of the meaninglessness of, of human endeavors. Um, uh, but then he also, at the same time, has this um, um, desire to sort of overcome that meaninglessness through uh, through religion, um, uh, which, you know, has is, is probably a lot less um, sort of um, uh, compatible with, um, you know, 20th and 21st century sensibilities, um, it's it's a lot harder to, I think, um, uh, sort of see yourself in that same um, uh, situation uh, uh, compared to some of his other writings about uh, the meaninglessness of, of human endeavors. Um, there was a, there's one point, yeah, and, and we, so I, I just mentioned this in the chat as well, one point of translation, which I think is a mistake here, um, this bit towards the beginning of that paragraph where, where in the translation it says, um, that um, the everyday satisfactions of existence lead to being a heathen Frank. Um, I think that heathen Frank should instead be um, something like a, an outright heathen or a straightforward heathen or something like that. Um, so the thought is that um, um, sort of uh, uh, allowing oneself to, um, to indulge in these everyday pleasures, even if they aren't uh, sinful pleasures, um, they're sort of um, permissible pleasures, uh, it um, it allows for ourselves to sort of um, take our satisfaction or take our our, our uh, yeah satisfaction I guess is the best word um, in the world. Uh, so to sort of find uh, the reason for our existence or the meaning of our existence to be something worldly as opposed to um, 
what uh, Pascal takes to be the the better approach is to um, uh, find the meaning of our existence in something outside the world, namely in, in God. Uh, and and so even submitting to these sort of harmless pleasures uh, is is a kind of um, distraction from the misery of human existence and um, turning away from the need for us to um, to uh, be saved and uh, to uh, to yeah to be saved by by God and and to to surpass the world. So so it sounds religious, and then the first part of this Pascal section, uh, he seemed really uh, emphasized the, like the importance of singularity and and so on. So kind of like individuality actually, but the um, compared to uh, Descartes, actually the part um, Angus read is homogeneity, continuity of Descartes. I mean, turned had changed it to like uh, emphasizes of plurality, heterogeneity, something like that. And then the part, the latter part is more like I don't know. We should do like just like uh, adding to words the 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 way of God, something like that. It's like more like a universal, universality. It's not as you point out. It's kind of really. So it looks a little contradictory, and uh, may, uh, maybe maybe not. Some parts really, um, really, um, yeah, new, something new and fresh. But the, at the same time, he couldn't. He is a kind of part of that time, right? Yeah, I think um, I think the way that Pascal would understand the religious um, aspect or the you know turning towards God and so on. Um, I think for Pascal, this is not something he would understand as uh, as being general or universal in that sense. It's still a kind of singularity. Um, so each of us, as a, a singular individual, is called towards God. Um, we each have to, uh, you know, make that decision for ourselves to um, to turn towards God. Uh, and and so there's a, a still a singularity in the sense that uh, it's it's a a singular person that has to make that decision. Um, we can't be um, we can't just sort of rely on um, like our sort of ambient culture of uh, uh, you know living in a, a Christian society and uh, sort of assume that that's sufficient to um, to save us, we have to actually make that decision for ourselves. Um, and so, yeah, I think that aspect uh, for Pascal is still one of singularity as opposed to generality. Oh, okay. You know whether so or not we want to uh, sort of agree with that, but. Um, uh, a, a second question, but I think that's how Pascal would understand it. So there are so many, many uh, various ways to get to the, the to God, right? That's kind of the idea. With very singular, diverse ways, uh, according to each individual's potential, and then, but the the end is kind of same, like uh, to the God, things like that. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, the the actual sort of historical events that lead one person to um, turn towards God might be completely different than, you know, the set of events that uh, leads another person to turn towards God. And uh, so there's like a, a sort of biographical element to it. Um, you know, whatever events that, um, that, um, that, uh, you know, bring about this conversion um, are are part of this singular life history for each individual. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, and then a couple questions here in the chat. Um, yeah, so um, this bit about orphism, I also find it confusing. I'm not sure exactly where this comes from. I, I, I mean, I don't know Pascal very well. I've only read a, a little bit of his work. Um, so I don't know if he does talk about orphism somewhere. 
And maybe that would be why Simon Dome mentions it here, or it could just be Simon Dome bringing it up for some reason. Um, so yeah, I, I don't have a good explanation for um, Orphism uh, sort of appearing here. But I think um, I think Orphism here is sort of standing in for um, a Greek um, religion in general, where we have a sort of, um, or, or you know, maybe not just Greek religion in general, but um, uh, a kind of um, understanding of the world in which we can um, sort of uh, achieve meaning through uh, some sort of mediation with the world, uh, so we can participate in the ideas, for example, in the um, in a, a sort of Neoplatonist context, um, we can uh, uh, sort of uh, have a, a grasp of meaning through that participation. Um, whereas uh, in in Pascal's context, um, there's no way of achieving something like meaning through through uh, mediation with the world. Uh, there's a sort of radical meaninglessness to worldly affairs that we have to overcome in by turning towards God. Uh, and so I think is that kind of contrast between a, a sort of pagan in the most general sense um, sort of way of getting meaning from the world uh, as opposed to uh, this uh, specifically Christian um, uh, context where we only find meaning by overcoming the world or or pointing beyond the world. And then also, uh, yeah, 61 has pointed to this um sort of strange line from Pascal that man is man is consequently reduced to himself. Um, and the, yeah, so there's a certain strangeness in that this reduction um, is, uh, you know, seemingly taking, you know, wh whatever this process of reduction takes man as an input, and then uh, the output is man again. Um, and then, so in what sense is it a reduction? Um, and I think, um, I think we can try to understand this in, in terms of um, um, how human beings sort of think of themselves and how they what they actually are. Um, so we we think of ourselves as uh, and and Pascal um, talks about um, how we put uh, so much um, sort of effort and uh, investment into what other people think about us. Um, like he talks about how people will sacrifice their lives for honor. Um, you know, dueling was a was a thing in in his time. Uh, you know, if you if someone you know said something that offends your honor, you would you know challenge them to a duel and you know potentially be killed um, you know, just to satisfy your honor. Uh, and so, essentially, what other people think of you. Um, and uh, um, so, we we put you know more uh, importance into what other people think about us uh, than we do to actually preserving our own lives. Um, and uh, so this sort of image that we have of ourselves as, you know, uh, an entity that other people um, sort of acknowledge and uh, recognize as having value and worth and so on uh, is maybe the first part of, of that reduction. So um, in our sort of everyday life, um, uh, when we're sort of absorbed in the world, we, we sort of have this image of ourselves as being uh, valuable and, you know, recognized by others as being valuable and so on. And then in the experience of um, uh, of being alone with oneself, we are sort of reduced to what we actually are. We, we're no longer sort of um, uh, what we uh, think that we are in other people's eyes, you know, a, a being with honor and dignity and so on. We're just left with ourselves and, and uh, that experience of uh, 
being left alone with ourselves uh, is a we feel that as a kind of reduction or a loss of um, everything that we thought we had uh, when we consider ourselves uh, as entities that others um, appreciate and so on. Uh, so I think maybe that's how we can understand this kind of reduction of the human being to uh, to itself. Um, it's a kind of loss of uh, that uh, imaginary sort of um, aura or or um, this imaginary um, uh, representation of ourselves as beings with dignity and honor and so on. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the Spinoza section. If someone else would like to read the first uh, page or so. I can read. Okay. Oh, go ahead. Susie, you want? Uh, okay, you sure? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, is my mic okay? Yeah, that's good. All right, Spinoza. With Spinoza, the soul is a spiritual automaton. If we consider the capacity of the understanding, in fact, there is a meth- methodical sequence of truths that begins with clear and distinct ideas and reveals the boundless fruitfulness of the understanding through the creation of mathematics and physics. All knowledge is unsuitable for this fruitfulness. All those that end in themselves and are placed side by side inert are rejected. They cannot, in fact, serve to increase the forces of the understanding. These include knowledge through hearsay and knowledge through vague experience. Conversely, the knowledge through which an effect is deduced from its cause and intuitive and certain knowledge are fruitful knowledges. This fruitfulness is expressed in the knowledge of knowledge, which is method. Method is the idea of the idea or the reflection on the true idea insofar as this idea is an instrument or a rule for acquiring other knowledge. Ad date vere idea normem, uh, according to the standard of a given true idea. The true idea has certainty in itself. Certainty is the objective essence of the thing, or the thing that such that such as it is represented in the understanding. The fictive idea is recognized by its indetermination. It permits alternative. The true idea does not permit indetermination, for it contains the reason of everything that can be affirmed or denied concerning its object. This intrinsic characteristic that guarantees the form of the true is, for example, that of a well-adjusted mechanism, which, in the mind of its inventor, is a true idea when this mind distinctly conceives the connection of its parts, even if this mechanism is not realized. Similarly, in the mathematical sciences, the understanding has the capacity to form true ideas by starting with simple and therefore fully determined ideas, like extension, quantity, movement. The true idea is therefore that which allows the soul to be a spiritual automaton. Nevertheless, can this power of the intellect be applicable to the individual itself? For that, nature would have to be deducible in its totality. And yet, the nature that the understanding deduces from the objective essence of the principle cannot be the series of singular things submitted to chain, but only the series of fixed and eternal things. Uh, Sirium rerum fixerum eternarumque. Eternarumque. That was a tough word. One. Latin. These fixed and eternal things are the set of laws that form, as the permanent structure of nature, the fixed essences and eternal truths, such as extension, the conservation of movement, the laws of mechanical shock in Descartes, and in Spinoza, the laws according to which all singular things happen and are arranged. They are particular essences, well-defined and determined truth. However, even the set of res fixe cannot be deduced. Quote, to conceive everything at once would far surpass the forces of the human understanding. Each of the res fixe is nothing but the link in a chain or the moment of a progress, not the part of a whole. One cannot thereby, therefore merely determine in the res fixe et eternae the place of a human nature 
and of this singular essence that we ourselves are, the distinction between individual bodies is not a real distinction, but a modal distinction. Only imagined extension is composed of parts, the finite sum of which it is. For the understanding, extension is infinite and indivisible. Bodies are not component parts, but merely limitations. Extension is a principle of intelligibility. Bodies are modes of extension through which they are conceived. Substance is unique. It is deus sive natura. All the attributes of this, this substance have the capability to account for the modes that are in them. The intelligibility of the attributes of unique substance is the order according to which in each of these attributes the modes follow one after the other. Substance consequently becomes the root of the unique order deployed in each attribute. The order and connection of ideas is the same as the order and connection of things. The rapport of substance to its attributes is therefore not a rapport of subject to predicate. God or nature is efficient cause, cause of essences as well as existences, self-cause or absolutely first cause, cause acting according to the laws of nature, cause, cause that is only effective through itself, and ultimately imminent cause. What results from this conception is that what could be called the complete automaton is merely the attribute and not a finite mode of extension. Nothing in a finite mode is related to the eternal essence of the attribute. The existence of this finite mode that an individual body, body is finds its reason in other finite modes, in other bodies that have communicated movement to it, and through their causality actually make it what it is. In turn, these other finite modes have their reason in other finite modes, and so on ad infinitum. An individual body is nothing but a mass of extension, the parts of which are animated by movements that are in a certain rapport and are communicated from one part to the other in a proportion, such that the body persists for a certain duration. Existence in duration is therefore existence as distinct from essence, and it belongs solely to the finite being which has the causality of its being outside it. For what is true of the modes of extension is also true of the modes of thought or ideas. According to the correspondence of the attributes, the order of the objects in thought reproduces the order of realities in extension. The finite mode does not possess eternity or the infinite enjoyment infinita in which essence the finite uh, mode let's oh, uh, let's oh, stop here okay sorry i was uh, looking for a paragraph yeah this is, this is one of these uh three-page paragraphs that uh, simundo loves to give us um thanks uh yeah so um so far i think we've mostly like what what simundo has given us here is mostly just a summary of um of spinoza uh in a, a fairly traditional sort of interpretation, um, we, we don't have a lot um, that is new, um, but um, I think, um, yeah, so um, yeah, there's maybe one of the points that sort of stands out here is um, the treatment of knowledge in terms of fruitfulness, um, because fruitfulness is not um, exactly the, I don't think Spinoza ever uses that term exactly, um, to describe the different kinds of knowledge, um, but he he does make a, a strong distinction between, uh, of course, the three kinds of knowledge and the ethics. Um, uh, so we have um, the first kind of knowledge is um, through the imagination. So it's either um, um, through hearsay. So uh, in, in Spinoza's example, we learn a rule for calculating. Uh, you know, we we learn it in school and we memorize it and we sort of apply it by rote, uh, but we have no understanding of, you know, why this rule works or, or anything like that. So this is the first kind of knowledge. Uh, and then also um, 
knowledge through experience is likewise uh, an instance of the first kind of knowledge. So if we uh, sort of you know try out the rule on a few different numbers and we find that it works, and then we just sort of assume that it applies generally, this is uh, also an instance of the first kind of knowledge. Um, and then the second kind of knowledge is knowledge through um, what uh, Spinoza calls the common notions. So um, there are certain properties of entities like um, you know motion and uh, figure and so on that are common to um, a variety of different entities. And if we uh, apply our knowledge of these uh, common properties to uh, particular entities, we can um, deduce properties uh, um, of the entities. So if I know that, um, for example, all triangles um, have uh, have angles equal to two right angles, and then I, you know, have some reason to believe, uh, you know, whether through perception or whatever, I, I know that this figure in front of me is a triangle, then I can deduce that the angles of this figure are equal to two right angles. Um, and so this is rational knowledge, uh, knowledge through deduction, uh, the second kind of knowledge. Uh, and then the third kind of knowledge is much more um, sort of mysterious, exactly what we're meant to uh, meant to take it to be, but uh, Spinoza describes it as a kind of intuitive knowledge. Um, so we grasp the, the truth um, that say that the, the angles of this figure are um, equal to two right angles. We grasp it without the mediation of a deduction. We just grasp it immediately. Or uh, in the case of you know the calculation rule, we, we grasp that this rule is valid through um, this immediate knowledge, the uh, intuitive knowledge of the third kind. Uh, and eventually in book five of the ethics, he describes this third kind of knowledge as being um, uh, in some sense, um, the, the kind of knowledge that God has uh, um, of himself or itself, whatever uh, pronoun we want to use there. Um, um, so when, when we have knowledge of the third kind, we are actually particip participating in the knowledge that God has of itself. Um, it, you know, our knowledge is a part of the divine knowledge. Uh, and um, so these three kinds of knowledge have different roles to play in the sort of um, uh, spiritual um, economy, I guess we could call it, um, the sort of system of principles and uh, functions that uh, form the, the human soul. Uh, and so they, they operate in different ways. And uh, Simon Don describes this difference as a difference of fruitfulness, which I think is a, um, a slightly different way of describing it than how Spinoza describes it. Yeah, there's an interesting comment here in the, uh, in the chat from Angus um, about, um, you know, would Simon Don see this, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics as a, uh, an instance of, of Spinoza's first kind of knowledge? Um, I think I think I would want to, and maybe I don't know if Simon would make this distinction, but I think I would want to make the distinction between. Um, so there's the Copenhagen interpretation as such, like the way that Bohr um, uh, sort of sets out um, his version of how we should understand the quantum uh, quantum physics, uh, and then there's the sort of like default um, interpretation of physicists who sort of. Um, assume like many physicists sort of just assume the validity of of something like the Copenhagen interpretation um, but they never uh, sort of question what exactly um, 
or, or they, they never really think about um, foundational questions in any detail. They just sort of assume that someone else has figured it out or someone else is working on it. And um, yeah, the, the, the sort of famous um, uh, slogan, shut up and calculate. Um, so like, don't worry about all these foundational questions, just use the quantum theory to predict various phenomena, um, which of course it's very good at. Um, and, uh, and you don't have to worry about any of the foundational issues um, uh, so yeah, this, this kind of approach or this kind of, um, uh, uh, way of working with the quantum theory, uh, would be an instance of the first kind of knowledge for, uh, for Spinoza. It's something that we sort of learn from by hearsay. We learn that someone else has a, an interpretation that makes it all work. And we just sort of say, okay, yeah, that's fine. So I don't, I don't need to worry about it anymore. Uh, someone else has, has solved this problem. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so it's it's a kind of uh, it's an instance of this first kind of knowledge, as opposed to someone who um, actually sort of works through the problem and comes up with a, a consistent approach to um, uh, interpretation of quantum theory would be something like the second kind of knowledge, and then um, uh, the third kind of knowledge would be something much more difficult to achieve. It would be a kind of intuitive grasp of the um, uh, the workings of quantum physics. Um, so it'd be like a, an immediate perception of the truth of the uh, um, uh, particular interpretation of quantum physics that you're proposing. And one other bit here in the Spinoza um, discussion that um, I think is important to, uh, to point out here is um, uh, the way that uh, Simon Don um, takes the problem of the individual to be sort of a key issue for Spinoza, um, because uh, we have uh, knowledge in the, the true sense of the term, or, or the, the second and third kinds of knowledge only of what is eternal. Um, so we have uh, our acquaintance with um, uh, finite things is only, um, is only a kind of uh, imaginative uh, experience of those entities. So uh, entities produce effects on our bodies and our, our minds are sort of parallel to our bodies and uh, undergo uh, transformations as well. Um, and uh, we have ideas, uh, these mutilated ideas, as he calls them, so or, or uh, sort of confused ideas uh, of entities, um, but we don't have any true knowledge of the causes of, um, of, uh, of these uh, mutilated ideas. Uh, and so um, uh, it's only in the second and third kinds of knowledge that we have knowledge of causes. Um, and uh, these kinds of knowledge are knowledge of uh, something eternal. So the, the difficulty here is that um, it, it means that we don't have knowledge of ourselves as entities with um, a particular location in space and time and a particular duration of life and so on. Um, you know, our, our singularity seems to be hard to grasp um we can't it seems like we can't have a rational knowledge of ourselves as entities that are um uh, finite beings uh and that um have a particular location in space and time um so yeah th this is sort of the problem of the individual for um uh as as far as simon Do sees it in spinoza do you think that this part at the uh the bottom of the last page where he talks about an individual body being nothing but a massive extension, parts of which are animated by movements that are in a certain rapport. Is that the, I think for Spinoza, the 
an individual, what distinguish, what makes an individual an individual is this notion of the characteristic ratio of motion and rest, which as I understand it, there are problems with that when you consider like acceleration, which changes this, the ratio of the quantity of motion to the quantity of rest in an individual. But obviously I don't cease to be an individual, individual every time I, you know, drive in a car, for instance. Yeah, Spinoza, um, Spinoza's physics is a little bit difficult to uh, figure out because um, so there's in the ethics in book two, there's um, a, a, a set of uh, principles of physics, which he sets out, um, but he he does so only uh, for purposes of um, uh, sort of understanding the human individual. Um, and and ultimately leading up to book five, which is human freedom. Um, uh, so he doesn't sort of set out his own sort of system of physics um, in opposition to Descartes' uh, system of physics um, um, uh, in a sort of systematic way. Uh, he just sort of introduces as much physics as is necessary to understand the human body and um, what relation the human mind has to the human body. Um, so yeah, he he definitely criticizes. Um, Descartes' physics and, and the principles that, that Descartes sets out for um, understanding motion, um, but his alternative is not um, uh, 100% clear. Um, but yes, the, the formulation that Spinoza uses to explain what an individual body is, is that it's, it consists of a certain ratio of motion and rest. Um, and uh, um, actually, there's an interesting... Um, so Martial Guerrou, who was a uh, important French historian of philosophy. Um, he argues that Spinoza, in in this this notion of um, uh, the ratio of motion and rest, he was thinking of something like um, harmonic motion, so um, the oscillation of a pendulum, for example. Uh, and so there's a um, a kind of um, oscillation or vibration of bodies. The, each body has its own sort of characteristic frequency of of oscillation. Um, or or resonance or something like that, um, and uh, this is what constitutes the body as an individual body, uh, and and so this is what's preserved in a body, uh, insofar as it undergoes various transformation. And and so like Spinoza talks about how the human body, for example, um, is this very complicated ratio of different um, kinds of motion and rest, uh, and it's constantly undergoing change. So of course you. Um, uh, lose matter and you take in matter. Uh, so the actual physical particles that make up your body are undergoing change constantly, but there's a sort of uh, general pattern or general um, resonance uh, or, or uh, structure that stays constant through that change. Um, so yeah, we have to think of some kind of um, uh, frequency of vibration or oscillation as being sort of the image of uh, this ratio of motion and rest. Uh, okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, yeah, I don't know how much hmm, I, I wanted to try to end earlier um, today, but I'm not sure if we're going to be able to finish the Spinoza um, uh, part before the uh, two hour mark. Um, but yeah, let's go on and see how far we get. Uh, so if someone else would like to read the next page or so. Uh, let me read the next part, if you don't mind. Sure. The fine mode that is the individual is characterized solely by a sufficiency, and as such it cannot be deduced immediately from the nature of the tribute of God, whose consequences are 
as eternal as himself. God is nothing but the remote cause of the individual. The individuality of, of a body is that of a machine whose different parts are arranged by exterior causes in such a way that they communicate movement according to a permanent order. An individual itself consists of other individuals, and the human body, in this sense, is a very complex machine made up of other machines. The soul, which begins and ends with the body, is the idea that is the attribute that has no object other than the corporeal individual in act. This idea has its cause outside it, outside it in other finite modes of thought, corresponding to the modes of extension that are the causes of the body. It is the position and the formation of the existence of the body it is as compo composite as the body itself and the individuality of the soul, with a variety of perceptions that it comprehends, does not have a different nature from that of the body. Insofar as it is a finite mode, the soul can have nothing but inadequate ideas of the body and of itself, i.e. ideas that do not make known the cause or reason of the body the idea at the same time as the object of the idea. The individual being is unintelligible to itself due to its very nature. The soul is a detached and isolated fragment incapable of relating to the ensemble. It is in fact possible to pass from natura naturans to natura naturata, which consists in the modes, without leaving the eternal and the, in infinite, the infinite. The constant quantity of the movement of movement is an eternal mode of extended attribute, eternal like the attribute itself, and an infinite mode because it indicates what is immutable in the fascist totius universi. There is necessarily a mode in the attribute thought and objectively contains the entire immutable order of nature. The infinite modes, therefore, have God as absolutely proximal Cause, but they do not make us leave the eternal and the infinite. The infinite, the individual, therefore, cannot be a microsome. This much. Yeah, let's stop here for now. Um, thanks. Yeah. So, um, there's this uh, sort of strange notion that we find in Spinoza of these infinite modes. So, um, the more sort of familiar notion of modes is the the finite modes. So, each of us as a, a human individual is a finite mode um, of a, a you know. A, um, a combination of uh, extension and uh, thought, uh, and each of our bodies is composed of further modes. Uh, each you know particle, each cell, each uh, component of our body is a uh, is a mode. Um, um, but there's also these infinite modes um, that Spinoza doesn't say a lot about. Um, but uh, each attribute, so thought and extension, and the infinite other attributes that we have no knowledge of, um, each of those attributes. Um, sort of generates this infinite mode um, that uh, um, so when when one of in one of the letters uh, one of uh, Spinoza's correspondents asks uh, for you know an explanation of what um, what these uh, infinite modes consist of and Spinoza gives the answer for extension that it's the the face of the whole universe the facius tosius universi um, so there's a kind of um, uh, the, the total ratio of, of motion and rest in the whole universe uh, stays the same, even though there's a constant change happening of the distribution of the various um, uh, uh, parts of the universe. Um, 
are constantly undergoing change, but the, t- the total pattern stays the same in the same way that the human body um, undergoes change, but the, the general pattern stays the same. So the, the whole universe is a kind of quasi-individual um, uh, that stays the same despite all the changes of um, the component parts. Um, and this is apparently what we're meant to understand by an infinite mode of the, in, in the attribute of extension. Um, so, uh, and then the attribute of thought is more obscure. Um, I forget the exact wording that Spinoza uses for the attribute of, of thought, the infinite mode in the attribute of thought. Um, but uh, yeah, so we we should understand each um, attribute as having not just these finite modes that we're familiar with, like ourselves and you know tables and chairs and so on, but uh, um, also these infinite modes, which is which are, are sort of um, uh, a kind of configuration of the whole universe uh, within that attribute. This part that, uh, makes me uh, wonder, first, like uh, the difference between Descartes and then Spinoza. So in that, um, Descartes, like, uh, as far as I understand, Descartes uh, emphasizes some kind of something stable, something unchangeable, uh, something fixed, uh, whereas like Descartes, uh, Spinoza seems in a way like the kind of like a... Um, bring some the idea of like um the some kind of changing transformation of being possible but i i can't i can't understand that that is just limited to the individual or it is can be applied to the the level of god because like the, the the concept of extension it's a little bit like a confusing because extension in a way kind of seems applied to the each each mood an individual as a mood but at the same time it's like uh the the level of God also God is like the being uh which uh, is extended as much as possible maybe I, I could be totally wrong and then the 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 next question is that uh the relation between like the individuality and the collectivity so finite mode is like maybe applied to the only individual but the uh infinite mode can be like in the for example like at the collective level um. Each 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 kind of mode, individuals like uh, has its own finite mode, but at the end of the day, like it 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 consists of like the infinite mode of God, something like that. Yeah, those are some uh, good questions. Um, I think yeah. So when we talk about extension, um, one key point to keep in mind is that for Spinoza, extension is not divisible, um, and um, so. Like this was one of the sort of objections um, that Descartes and others had used to say that um, God can't be characterized as an extended being um, because uh, God is uh, is infinite, um, and so if you divided the infinite, you would have parts that are either um, so it, you uh, so you divide the infinite into parts. So you have say two parts, part one and part two. And then either those parts are themselves infinite or they are finite, uh, and either way leads to uh, an absurdity. So if the parts of the infinite are themselves finite, then adding two two finite parts uh, creates something infinite, which is absurd. Uh, Or uh, alternately, if the two parts of the infinite are themselves infinite, then we now have two infinites, which uh, in uh, the 17th century understanding of the infinite would also be absurd. Uh, So we... Either uh, supposition about dividing the infinite uh, leads to absurdity. And uh, before Spinoza, this was generally taken as an argument against the uh, possibility of God being extended. 
Um, but then Spinoza actually takes this as an argument that extension is itself indivisible. So God uh, is an entity, um, is an extended thing, uh, or you know, one of the attributes of God is extension, um, but only extension uh, conceived of as something indivisible. So extension as a whole, the entirety of extension. Uh, and when we think about um, a particular space, um, so like the the space uh, of this room where I'm sitting now, um, that is divisible into parts. Um, uh, and then those parts are in turn divisible into further parts and so on. Um, but um, the extension, extension as such is not something divisible. Uh, it's only components uh, or parts of extended substance that are um, divisible. Uh, and so um, this is, I think, sort of the key point where uh, Spinoza's conception of extension differs from Descartes, um, because for Descartes, uh, extension is divisible, and that's why God can't, and, and the human soul um, as well, can't be um, extended. Um, and then on that second point about the, the collective, I think that's a, that's a very um, important um, uh, topic in Spinoza uh, that Simundo doesn't really address, um, but there are these, uh, and this this comes up more in the um, uh, theological political treatise um, and the political treatise um, where Spinoza talks about the formation of a state, um, and he uses this phrase um, uh, uh, that uh, is hard to translate, but it means something like, um, as it were, guided by a single mind. Um, so he talks about how when when a bunch of individuals, a bunch of human beings come together to form a state. They they form a collective that is um, as if it's guided by a single mind. Um, uh, and so they, they sort of overcome their individuality. Um, but at the same time, they, there's a kind of preservation of individuality as well, uh, because, you know, Spinoza famously or, um, you know, he's well known for defending um, uh, freedom of thinking and freedom of speech uh, um, as being key principles for a well-governed state. Uh, and so he thinks that um, the a well-governed state has to preserve um, the sort of natural inclinations of individuals, uh, um, the, what Spinoza in Latin, he calls the ingenuum. Um, so it's like the, the sort of character or natural inclinations of individuals. And if a state tries to sort of uh, counter those natural inclinations of individuals, then it will um, necessarily lead to dissension and um, to uh, uh, you know strife and and eventually civil war. Um, and so there's uh, like a, a well-governed state is one in which individuals can sort of pursue their natural inclinations and not be um, sort of subject to something that they find. Um, uh, sort of counter to their natural inclinations. And so there's a, a kind of preservation of the individual. And then at the same time, as there's a sort of um, surpassing of the individual uh, in, in the collective. So there's, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, a subtle kind of relationship between the individual and the collective in Spinoza that uh, Simon Don doesn't really talk about very much. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, so I think maybe this would be a good point to end because I don't think we're going to be able to get through the Spinoza section today. You know, there's still a couple pages, um, um, and uh, I do need to end early today. So yeah, let's stop here, uh, unless anyone has any sort of final thoughts or questions on what we've read today. Uh, no, thank you, though. I'm still stuck on Pascal. I'll 
I'll work on Spinoza. Right. Yeah. The podcast section was a. There's a lot in that short section. So yeah, it's uh, there's a lot to think about. Um, but yeah, so let's stop here. Um, let me put a note in the chat so I don't forget where we are. Okay. Uh, so thanks everyone for coming out, and uh, I hope to see you next week. Thank you so much. See you next week. Thanks everyone.